Good to see each of you here again this morning. I'd like for you to turn, if you have your Bible with you, to Luke, the 15th chapter. Luke, the 15th chapter. And we're going to look at a teaching of Christ given in parable that's familiar, I guess, to uh, just about anybody that's been in any Christian society for any length of time, whether or not that you uh, have gone or, or go to services, to really appreciate uh, what Jesus is saying here. There's several things that, that we need to do with our mind. And that's first, as you listen to this and as you look at Jesus, keep in mind that Jesus did not live in a vacuum. There were other uh, religious groups that were teaching and representing the things about God at this time. The Jews were God's people to prepare the world for the Messiah. And they were to be a light and to teach God's law and to reach out and let the people know who the true God was. At the time that Jesus comes to this earth, the Jews are divided up into a lot of little sects. Uh, so like Christians today, divided up into a lot of different denominations, each with their specific beliefs on various things. Well, this is the way the Jews were divided up when Jesus came. And among the groups that were prominent at this time were the Pharisees. The word Pharisee itself means the separated ones. Uh, the Pharisees actually started uh, as a Jewish conservative body with very good intention. Uh, the Pharisees were Jews that uh, saw the, the Roman world and especially the Greek culture that was having a, a lot of influence on Judaism. Uh, they saw Jews that were losing their language and their culture and, and losing parts of the law of Moses uh, in the Greek-influenced culture that they lived in. So the desire of the Pharisees was to call people back to the law of Moses and to worship in keeping with the law and to separate themselves from those things contrary to the law. But along the way, they became a, a little denomination and they looked down on everybody who did not share their values and their, their interpretations of the law. They reached a point where when it came to sin, they didn't just look down on sin with the idea that we need to point out sin and, and try to get people to repent and accept the law, but they looked down on the sinner. And, and we know that there's a difference here between the way Jesus looks on sin and sinners and the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees cannot disassociate the two. And so they look down on the sinner in the same way they look down on his sins and they didn't want to have anything to do with the sinner. And so the individual that was living out there contrary to the laws of God, the Pharisees wanted absolutely nothing to do with that person. They wouldn't give him the time of day. They looked down their nose at him. The other prominent religious group at this time was the Sadducees. And they were among the elite and well-educated at this time. They were actually a pretty small group. And they were among the better educated. They also respected the law of Moses. Uh, they differed from the Pharisees in that they rejected much of the Old Testament. They accepted the law of Moses and that was it. They also rejected the resurrection. In the rejection of the resurrection... They abandoned all hope for mankind. I mean, after all, the, the bad news that we all face is death. Uh, none of us want to die. We, we would all like, if we're going to have to die, to have at least the hope of something beyond the grave. 
Well, when the Sadducees abandoned their belief in the resurrection and they were influenced by the Greek Epicureans. Uh, remember the book of Acts? You read about the Stoics and the Epicureans? Well, the Epicureans did not believe in the resurrection. The Stoics did. And so the Sadducees were Jews that had been influenced by the Epicurean philosophy of their day among the Greeks and as a result had cast aside their Jewish belief in the resurrection. Well, then the result was they had nothing to offer anybody. Uh, they may say that they respect the law of God, but in the final analysis, everybody knew that they fell short of that law and everybody knew that they were dying. And so the Sadducees were a group that had absolutely nothing to offer once they abandoned their belief in the resurrection. Then there was another group that were referred to as the Essenes. And they were a group that would be compared to maybe some Christian group today that has decided that society is just absolutely corrupt. I want absolutely nothing to do with it. And so they go out here in a desert area or in a wooded area or someplace by themselves and they buy some land and they just associate with one another. And they, they try to avoid as much as possible all contact with the surrounding world. Well, that was the way the Essenes were. Uh, they, on the one hand, they respected the law of Moses and they were trying to teach it and live it. But they really didn't do a lot of good uh, to the culture and the people of that day because they were out there by themselves. Nobody was good enough for them. Well, then there were the Herodians that were Jews that were so caught up in politics that that was their number one thing. It's pretty hard to be wrapped up in right and wrong if you're also wrapped up in politics because uh, politics sometimes means that you compromise what you believe is right or wrong because of another goal. So the end result was, this is what the world had feeding them the words of God. The Pharisees, who believed a lot of right things, but looked down their nose at everybody that was off, and of course everybody is a sinner. Uh, a good example of the Pharisee is uh, when Jesus gave the example of two people going up to pray, one of them a Pharisee. And the Pharisee stood there and bragged uh, before God as, as to what a good person he was. And said, I'm not like this other guy over there. And the other guy just beat his chest and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said he went justified. Well, obviously, if you were that sinner praying there with the Pharisee, you could see that that Pharisee wouldn't have much effect on you. Uh, you wouldn't even feel comfortable being around him. Do you feel comfortable being around people that you think look down on you? Do you feel comfortable being around people that, that don't think that you're quite as good as they are? Well, you don't. And so you tend to avoid uh, situations that might put you in, uh, in company with anybody that you feel looks down on you in any way or somebody that's not comfortable with you in any sense. And so the Pharisees may have had a lot of right answers along with some wrong ones, but they had some right answers too. But the people that needed the information uh, of those people, there was not many of them that were going to go to the Pharisees. There was a barrier between them. In this atmosphere, and in this society comes Jesus, the Messiah. He does not, this is interesting, Jesus does not identify with any of the religious Jewish sects of his day. He never joins the Pharisees. He never joins the Sadducees. He never joins the Herodians. He never joins the Essenes. He believes in the law of Moses stronger than anybody. He believes in the law of God. He's living a perfect life. But he doesn't join any of those groups. So they're standing back and, and they're very concerned about him. 
Jesus, anywhere he goes, attracts a multitude, and of that multitude, he attracts the very chief of sinners to come in to hear him speak. And the Pharisees and the religious people of the other groups were a little bit jealous of him because they would like to have some influence on people. And here's Jesus, everywhere he goes, he attracts this audience. And so they're looking at him and they're looking for ways that, that they can expose him. And here they've really got something. Jesus had a habit of associating with the very chief sinners and spending time with them and talking with them and reasoning with them. And this actually became a means of their pointing out how wrong that he was as a religious leader. Well, it's from within this context that Jesus, after having been branded by the Jewish religious leaders because of his association with the sinners, gives us these few examples and this one particular parable in order to teach us a relationship that Christians ought to sustain to the world and the relationship that God sustains to the world, and that means the entire world, uh, no matter how far in sin that any of us are. Okay, the tax collectors, beginning in verse 1. The tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. So here he is, a religious person, perfect man, and yet all the sinners are gathered there to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so they're shocked that here he is, a, a religious person, believer in the law of Moses, great teacher, but he actually welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Well, we can see the example that he's drawing there that if, you're, if you've got 99 sheep here and you've lost one you can't find the one you lost if you're not willing to leave the 99 that are here and save can you and so you say hey I've got these and therefore I'll leave in order to go and find uh, the other individual okay now get that in your mind the concept of leaving uh, saved individuals that, that you enjoy being with and then being willing to take the time to get out here and go and find somebody else. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, we all identify with that. When we lose something, whether it's a coin or whatever it is, if we lose something, what determines whether or not you look for something you've lost? Think about it. We all lose things all the time. You don't look for everything you lose, do you? I mean, if you're outside and you, and you drop a penny in the grass and you reach down and you don't see it right away, how long are you willing to look for that penny? <clears throat> Probably not very long. 
But what happens if you drop a hundred dollar bill? How long are you willing to look for it? A whole lot longer, right? In other words, how hard you're willing to look for something that you lose and the effort you put into it is going to be directly proportioned to the value that you place on it. And so the more value you place on something you lose, the more effort. If you don't look for it, what you're really saying is, I don't place a lot of value on that. It's exactly what you're saying. If, if you lose something, uh, you're not willing to put some time involved in trying to find it. What you're really saying is, I don't value it that highly. It's just simply not that valuable. I'm not going to spend the time. Okay, Jesus has established that a principle that when you lose something that has value, you look for it and you rejoice when you find it because it has value to you. The Pharisees, we begin to note something before we go further. They weren't looking very hard to find people out there in sin that, that they could teach the law of Moses to and lead them to God. And the reason they didn't is because the, value, the Pharisees didn't place a lot of value on the lives of those people. Uh, the Pharisees looked at individuals and if you were already the type of person that they thought you should be, well, man, you could just come right in and enter in among them and, and they would enjoy your fellowship and you could enjoy theirs. But if, if the Pharisees looked at you and, and you simply didn't agree with them and you were living different than the way they believed is right, then they did not place a lot of value on you. If they placed a lot of value on you, they'd try to change you and persuade you otherwise. But they didn't. And so they valued... Now, before you get all down on these Pharisees, remember, we don't get anywhere unless we bring some of that home. Unless we reach a point where we really value human beings that are made in the image of God, value them to the point that we realize, even if they're out there on drugs or alcohol, or in their 10th marriage, or in the 50th person they've lived with, or whatever their situation may be, unless we value them as individuals that are created in the image of God and have the potential to have eternal life with God, then we're not going to spend a lot of effort in trying to do something about that. In fact, when you study churches as a whole, across the country. What we generally see when it comes to evangelism is that we consider, uh, we look out, and those people that are working and have jobs and they treat their wives and their husbands right and everything like that, we, we place value on them, and that's fine. We want to. And so we'll make an effort to reach those individuals. But when we look out there and, and see individuals that sometimes are far away from what we believe is right, we, most of the time, as a group, don't put a lot of effort in trying to reach these people. And Jesus is saying, if you place value on something, you're going to be concerned about it. Now, the next parable, the final one, and he's really seemingly building up to this, beginning in verse 11. We learn so much in this simple parable. Obviously, in the parable, the, the father here is God. The prodigal son could be any one of us. Uh, the elder brother could it be any one of us at another time uh, in our life. Uh, his, his context is, is talking to the Pharisees. He's really trying to get a message to the Pharisee. 
And he's going to justify the time that he is spending with these sinners. At the same time, try to deal with the Pharisee. And his real message is to the Pharisee. So there was a man that had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off in a distant, for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hard men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will sit out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring in the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring in the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, they replied. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. And he refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. First of all, well, why the difference in the attitude of the older brother and the father when the younger son made the decision to come home. I would suggest to you that the big difference was very simple. The father simply loved the younger son. I mean, he really and truly loved him, and his love for that son was not conditioned by the type of person he was. He still loved him. If his love depended on that person being a certain type of individual, then obviously the father would have to love the older son and not love the younger, right? Because the older son had been there pleasing him. But what we find is that the father, although he loves the older son, he has never given up his love for the younger son, even though the younger son has been out there squandering his wealth and living with prostitutes. The father still loved him. The older son could love the younger brother as long as the younger brother was at home doing the right thing. But once he got out there and started squandering 
and living with prostitutes, the older brother thought, hey, here I am slaving and working, etc. He's getting his dues, I'm getting mine. And so he could have had love for him had he stayed at home and earned his way. And so a difference in the attitude, and we, how could it be any stronger? All of us are made in the image of God. God loves every one of us. God loves Saddam Hussein. God loved Hitler. God loves Stalin. God loves every single one of us. We're made in his image. And in the same way that a parent, it's no example that in the story here that God uses the father and not the son to represent him. Because although brothers and sisters have a certain relationship, it's not the same relationship that a parent has. You see, the parent brought those children into existence. And they can often look back, and even when one has made mistakes and gone astray, they can often look back and they can see at least the reasons for those mistakes. That doesn't mean it's right. But the parent can often look back and say, hey, this was wrong and that was wrong, or they made a mistake there and they can see the reasons. And so the parent can continue to love even though the person's acting in the wrong way. Uh, with our peers, we have a tendency to relate to one another based on whether or not somebody's doing things to please us. To really understand what's involved in salvation, we're going to have to get out of ourselves and put ourselves in the place of God. God the Father loves all of us, period. Whether we're good or bad, whether we're with him or against him, he loves us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So, these Pharisees were looking at these individuals from the standpoint of their actions, and they looked terrible. Jesus was looking at them as individuals that were made in the image of God. And although they were living in a certain way, just as they had free choice and could choose to do wrong, and we note something else in this parable. Notice, God doesn't interfere with free choice. That's why we do have drunks and drug dealers and thieves and rapists and robbers, etc. God doesn't interfere with free choice. God doesn't force his will on us. But Jesus looked at them and he knew they had exercised their free choice and made wrong decisions. But he knew something else too. God's law is perfect. And when you deviate from it, there's consequences. And many times when people suffer the consequences for their deviation, they begin to re-examine their actions. And Jesus looked at these sinners and knew, hey, yes, they've sinned, but they have suffered consequences for their sin. Maybe, maybe they're willing to re-examine themselves and, and see the consequences and change their mind and do it God's way. And if they do, then God's willing to receive them back with open arms, wipe away all their sins, make them clean as if they never made a single solitary mistake. And so when we look at the parable, we see, number one, God's love for each of us, no matter what we do, no matter how bad we are or anybody else out there, God loves them. You and I may not like them in our weakness, but God loves them. And we need to keep that in our mind. 
Another thing, when Jesus deals with these individuals, you and I have a tendency, like again, the, the elder brother here, if we don't watch this, we look at people only from the standpoint of what they are. Right then. Jesus was looking at them from the standpoint of what they had the potential to be. And it's based on what they had the potential to be that he was willing to invest himself and invest his time and eventually go to the Christ cross and die for every last one of us. You and I look at the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, in the seventh chapter of Acts, and he's holding the garments of people when they stoned Stephen to death, and he's going around pulling people out of their houses and have them beaten and thrown in jail, and we look at him and we say, you hard-hearted scoundrel, you don't even deserve to live. That's what the church thought of Paul. God didn't look at him that way. He said, hey, humble Paul, get him to see the truth, and that man will be as zealous for what is right as he is for what is wrong. You know, it's interesting. Paul didn't just see Jesus. God blinded him. Absolutely blinded him and let him wallow in his misery for three days. And think about all the wrong that he had done and let him sit there for three days blind and wallow in that misery before he gave him his eyesight. And so in the parable we see that number one, we all have free choice. Now, number two, that elder brother was a sinner too. He didn't sin in the same way the son did, but he was a sinner. I've never understood why it should be so difficult for any one of us to repent when we need to. I mean, I can see it being difficult. If I come here and, and I associated with you and you were all a bunch of perfect people that never made any mistakes, then I would find it difficult from within that situation to admit that I had blew it and made some mistakes. But that's not the case, is it? Uh, when you come here or anybody else comes in among us, there's not a perfect one here. We've all made mistakes. And we will never reach that point in our life when we don't make mistakes. Now, we may have made different types of mistakes that stand out, but we've all made mistakes. So everybody should be able to come in to an audience where you're not going to be looked down on if, I don't care if you've been out there doing drugs or whatever. Everybody there is a sinner saved by the grace of God. They've all made mistakes. From within that framework, you and I, like Jesus here, need to be doing a good job of getting across the fact to everybody. Some people out there, I honestly believe, they think that they've been so bad that they, they just don't have a chance. We need to do a better job of getting across to them that I don't care that you've been divorced and remarried 50 times or, or you've had children out of wedlock or you've lived with umpteen people or you've been on drugs or you've been drunk or, or you've been in jail or whatever it is. God loves you. As hard as it is for you to believe, God loves you. You're made in his image. And you have the ability to change. You can change your mind and say, I'm sorry for this and, and I want to go another direction. And God has Jesus there as a sacrifice for your sins. And he will forgive you of every sin you've ever committed in your life. Now, now there may be some, some religious people who in their ignorance or their bigotry 
who will continue to hold that in their mind or, or say various things. Don't worry about them. Don't worry about them any more than you're worried about the prodigal son here. I mean, not the prodigal, but the elder son. Can you see the story reversing? And the prodigal son saying, hey, I'm not going to repent and go home because I know my brother will never forgive me. He thought about the father, didn't he? He thought about the father. So convince people, and we need to convince them, yes, I guarantee you there will be those brothers in Christ who are so weak or so unloving or so misunderstanding of the nature of God that even when you 100% repent, uh, we'll find it, or they'll find it hard to cast out of their mind. Don't let that stand between you and the creator of the universe who loves you and made you in his image. Think about the Father. And the Father will forgive you just like he forgave David, just like he forgave Paul, just like he forgave Peter, who denied the Lord three times, the third time cursing. Paul held the garments of the people who stoned Stephen to death. David committed adultery and had a man put to death. Abraham lied a couple of times to save his hide. Lot was willing to give up two of his daughters for people to have sexual relations with because of a couple of men that he was entertaining. The imperfections abound. And you and I haven't done anything worse than what David did or Paul did are those other spiritual characters that we read about. Their greatness came in the fact that they were willing to humble themselves before God, repent of their sins, and allow God to forgive them. And so the lesson here is, number one, you and I, those of us that are, if you feel you're in a right relationship and all with God right now and you're striving to do His will, we need to keep in mind that just as important as our fellowship with one another and our partaking of the supper to commemorate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is our reaching individuals out here who are not in Christ for Christ. We need to put forth more effort to talk to the people that are really having problems with their lives and let them know that Jesus and Christianity has the answers. It'll teach you how to have the best marriage, how to rear your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, It'll teach you how to make a success of your own life. You won't have to take the, read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's a good book. I've read it. But I guarantee you, if you benefit, every principle in that book was based on the principles taught in the Bible. In fact, I don't know a good book out there that's a self-help book, but that the principles in it are based on the principles found in the Bible, if it is good and can actually help people. It has the answers. And we need to get that across and we need to make people aware of the fact that whatever you have done or whatever mistakes you've made, you can be forgiven and you can start over life absolutely brand new. God will forgive all your sins. You can have your whole life before you. And most important, you can have eternal life. What about the elder son and his attitude? Well, I've, you know, I've been here like the guy that would say, hey, I've been coming to church for 20 years now and, and giving my money and doing such and such and this person's been out there doing drugs and fornicating and they're just going to walk in and be equal with me. That's exactly right. They've suffered for their sins. The law is perfect. To the degree that I sin in this life, I'll pay the penalty in my own flesh and my own life. 
And so will you and so will everyone else. But as long as I'm willing to repent and confess to God and put my trust in that sacrifice, God will forgive me and I can stand pure and blameless before him and walk with the knowledge that I have eternal life because of Jesus. Let's remember the hope that we have and live out here as people that have that hope and then let's think maybe more seriously than we have about those individuals who have scarred lives and who need what Jesus has to offer. And let's not be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let's be like Jesus and associate with the people that really need the Lord and make them aware of the fact that you just cannot be so bad, but that God loves you and Jesus died for you. Let's conclude our study for this morning. If you're in our audience as, as an individual that is in any way subject to the good news of salvation in Jesus, the plan is very simple. Repent of your sins, put your trust in him. And then God asks you to express the trust that you have in your heart by acknowledging with your mouth Jesus is Lord and being baptized into him for the forgiveness of your sins. No power in the water. The water is a physical act performed in faith that pictures a spiritual truth. The spiritual truth is your death to sin and resurrection to walk in newness of life. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that gives you life. What appropriates the remission of your sins is your trust in the atoning blood of Jesus. If you need to respond in any way, we give you the opportunity as together we stand and sing.